0: Inside the feral zone.
1: Greetings listeners. Welcome back inside the feral zone. I am Renee Coleman, operating under cover of darkness from the Heart of the Clampyre, Snake and Jake's Christmas Club Lounge. Now, The Feral Zone is a sister podcast of the Troubled Men podcast. It will appear in this space from time to time when uh, either Manny is uh, otherwise indisposed as he is tonight. He's uh, digging his way from out, of, uh, from, out from under about uh, 20,000 textbooks over there at the big university. And uh, he will be back. But tonight, we're uh, very fortunate to have a terrific guest host. He's, uh, he's a fantastic guitar player, singer, band leader. I refer to him as a zealig of rock and roll in that uh, he's been in in so many different scenes. You can bring up uh, any kind of rock and roll scene and start talking about it. Well, not only does he know about it, but he was there the first time around. He he grew up uh, with his dad in the Jackie Gleason show band uh, down in the heyday of Miami when they had uh, the great Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders down there, Uh, knew all those Uh, of those guys intimately he was uh, in the the formative years of the L.A. punk scene uh, and uh, as well as the the San Francisco scene played with the residents and Snakefinger Clubfoot Orchestra uh... as his, his credits go on and on and we'll get into all that but uh... without further ado the great mister dick deluxe welcome Dick. hey thank you renee it's a, always a pleasure to be with you man so Oh man uh, so so uh... so happy to have you here thanks for uh... for coming on the uh, the the feral zone to uh... to uh... to lend a hand and uh... we will just get our guest right in here uh... am well, so very thrilled because him is one of my uh... personal heroes that uh... From well, the ver- early days. Of well, Blackout. I got to introduce him first. You're <laughs> jumping the gun. Uh-oh. So anyway, <laughs> he's a this is a, a legendary record producer, uh, president, director of AR, and co-founder along with his brother Nauman. Scott. Uh, there was a co- they're the founders of the Blacktop Records, uh, starting back in 1981. He's also a, a b- personal manager, booking agent, tour manager for Gatemouth Brown, also uh, an attorney, a former assistant district attorney for Orleans Parish. I know he's got a lot of a lot of stories back there about that. We're going to get into all that. And without further ado, the great Mr. Hammond Scott. Welcome, Hammond.
2: Well, i tell you, I don't know what to say after somebody talks so wonderfully about me, but... Uh... Thank you, because I can surely use it.
1: Right, right. <laughs> we could all we could all use a pat on the back. You know, sometimes I'll I'll say uh, you know, pats on the back will be self-administered. And, you and, know, and,
2: I, actually, the funny thing was I went into a, about a, a fifteen fifteen year what do I call it a self-exile. <laughs> I did that for a long time because uh-huh. uh, there was a, a point when the music business thing kind of just sort of broke my heart.
1: Sure, it and, will do that.
2: And lately. I've been so glad to discover so many people who took me forever, but I got on Facebook, and and uh, so it's amazing. You never know who's going to say, come on out. We remember something good, and so I appreciate you asking me out.
1: Oh, man, it's a thrill to have you and on here. i love here. to
2: be here with Mr. Agner because uh, he anything that I seem to do, he seems to add to it a lot of time. He's got great stories, and I could... Talk about anybody, anybody I want to talk about, and he he tends to have something really good to add.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, D- Dick's uh, he's a he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, well, you know, we like to sometimes start these podcasts with a, a little bit of uh, you know what's going on, current events, you know, the things that are going on in our lives, and uh, you know. T- It's the the relentless heat is it it gets boring, but uh, it's it's still I I find new things to comment about on it. And today I was looking in the newspaper and they have the uh, seven day forecast printed. And the next four days we have a high of 100, including today, and a low of 82 or a low of 80 uh, in a couple of days. And each day they have uh, some a couple of descriptive words that that. Describe these days and so they're all uh, high of 100 low of 80 or 82 today it says sweltering heat and muggy tomorrow it says scorching hot and sticky the next day it says intense heat and humid then the next day it says blazing heat and humid nice now I, I don't know. It's a, they, they don't want to use the same words over and over, I guess. I understand. You know, they, That's
2: their job. They don't want to be boring.
1: Trying to be creative. I mean,
2: if your whole job is to, just, is to describe <laughs> the weather in just a few words.
1: Just pull out your thesaurus, yeah, man. You, you got, you got Go to, to, to town. Uh, You've got
2: to have some variance in there.
1: Right. <laughs> it caught my attention. You know, it's funny what catches your attention. It's like, all right, well, I appreciate that. But I did you not know? noticed that, so
2: I'm very impressed. <laughs>
1: well, you know, attention to detail, it's, it's, it's one of my, uh, you know, to to a fault that's one of my uh, one of my talents to a fault well uh... you know we had uh... some some recent news you you being a, a former district attorney uh, assistant district attorney i'm sure you're you're always uh... uh... Um, keen to see what's going on in the criminal front so we had uh... uh mayor cantrell she lost her husband uh... jason cantrell passed away suddenly uh, last week or so so they had the the funeral yesterday and uh you know i was looking in the list of people the what went on there and well uh unsurprisingly uh uh convicted uh library embezzler uh Irvin mayfield oh, uh, was a was a featured speaker he was not just there in attendance but, uh, but he, he actually had a, a position of, of honor there. So, you know, he's a favorite son of New Orleans. So I'm thinking, well, I know she's, she's in with uh, former Fred the Painter, another criminal, uh, Fuad Zetun. So I imagine that he would have been there as well. I used
2: to know him in his early painting days. Did you? And he seemed like the nicest fella. Well,
1: yeah, he, he comes on real nice. He painted my house one time, too, you know. And, and like his, his thing was. He never
2: painted for me.
1: Well, his thing was he would, he would show you a book. And it had all of, uh, here I painted uh, 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 Mark Morial's house. Here's the letter Mark Morial wrote to me, you know, and he shows you all this stuff. And he sells you on a super cheap price. And then after you're about a week in, he'll say, oh, you know, just just give me a, a quarter of the thing as a down payment. Uh, as a deposit they call it and then uh, a week later he'd come and go buddy buddy and he puts his arm around you real tight he's like a former boxer you know so he kind of physically intimidates you and goes look you can help me out right uh... I, i have this uh... tax bill i have to pay uh... can you can you uh... uh... pay me some more of the the money so i can and i was like well, no, man, you you know, I don't want you to get ahead in the job. Oh, oh, so you're not my friend. Oh, all right, you know, anyway. Yeah, that's the <laughs> real uh, okey-doke. He, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None he, of
2: the baby needs new shoes. Right,
1: though. right. So he, he ultimately wound up, uh, I think, uh, uh, pleading guilty to uh, defrauding some old ladies. And uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't, well, he's
2: one of those New Orleans characters. I wonder what became of him.
1: Oh well, no. He's he's a big supporter of of uh, of oh he's still uh, around. Of, oh yeah, okay. of, of Latoya Cantrell. I think well, he, he's
2: getting up in my age. He, group. He, he, he's, he, he's old enough to know better.
1: Well, I, I think recently is the, the thing he's under charges for right now uh, <laughs> is is that he uh, he he had some kind of insurance claim on on uh, uh, stolen paintings. And come to find out, well, the, he was uh, working with a, this is all allegedly, of course, working with a crooked police officer who, who uh, uh, filled out a police report on these supposedly stolen uh, paintings. Maybe a couple months later, the FBI showed up, did a executed a search warrant at his, uh, his hotel that he owns down there in the Garden District. And they found all those paintings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, it
2: goes on and on and Best
1: on. of luck. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I... And let's go back to your your early days here. Uh, so this is what we often do. With so uh, so Hammond, uh, you're not from New Orleans originally. You grew up in uh, in Alexandria.
2: Yeah, 126 miles from the uh, Louisiana Hayride up there in Shreveport. Right. I thought it actually it was not a, a musical town, but they had a lot of musical people living there. And and you know there was uh, I was aware of music from the time. Uh, And and really stuff that adults would like because it was blues and R&B, which is not kiddie music. Right. And uh, really as long as I can remember. And uh, we heard a lot of things on the radio from Mm. Lafayette and various areas. And, of course, obviously you had things like the Boogie Kings and all that in the 60s. And and, uh, so uh, I think of it as a fertile area to grow up. You know, now, uh, you for come, a lot of things.
1: Now, did you come from kind of an aristocratic? Uh, yeah, family? that's if
2: I ever put this uh, these memoirs together that people. you are have that to air urge about you.
1: You have an air of sophistication and 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 uh, you have a genteel quality about you.
2: Well, there's you know there's something if I ever put these uh, uh, memoirs together, I've been urged to do. That's one of the things I want to do. In the beginning, is you know I think it'd be interesting for some people how you could come from my background that I was lucky to have and wind up giving up everything for the music business, you know. Yeah. And especially to go out on the road, like with Gate Mouth and all that. My father fully embraced it. He loved it. Uh, But uh, so it is really kind of an interesting story and it really has to do with even the records I was hearing, like dreaming of being involved with records. Because I remember like uh, Two Steps from the Blues, there were two two albums that seemed like everybody had them. In the early '60s, and I would have been about 12, you know. Okay. Uh, would be uh, well. Obviously, they had the Ray Charles record. What did I say? But I'm I'm really thinking more along the lines of of uh, of Live at the Apollo with James Brown, sure, which he financed himself, and then the Two Steps from the Blues. And you know, I'd heard their music before those records came out, but they were everybody had it. You know, it just seemed like had those records. They were so important. And when I used to listen, I used to dream of uh, being involved in all that in some kind of way.
1: Right. Well, so, uh, but, but you didn't go right into music. So you, you, uh, you went to LSU, I guess, for your undergraduate? I
2: went to, I did a survey of several schools. Okay. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I I'd, I'd misbehaved and uh, I had friends that, I had a lot of friends my father was not happy about me having uh-huh. because they weren't on the same trajectory that I was on. Right. That I was supposed to be on. Right. And so they were considered bad influences, but uh, they were dear friends. And then, you know, uh, somehow or another, uh, I had in my mind when I first went off to college the total freedom of being out from under parents. So I totally uh, didn't act the way I was supposed to when I went to LSU. Okay, I could
1: see that. And I went the
2: fraternity route and all that. Oh, really? I was a deke, Delta Kappa Epsilon. Oh, okay. Delta Kappa Epsilon. (laughs) And we were not exactly doing... uh, uh, public service like some of them tried to act like they were, uh-huh. doing and uh, but it wasn't long before uh, I got some trouble and got sent to Alexandria to be in school at LSUA and then I wasn't attending classes there uh-huh. so the next thing uh, you know I wound up at uh, Louisiana Tech Okay. and we had a lot of fun up there a lot of people had farms because they needed people to live in those houses and you know some of the stuff that went on up there was kind of unbelievable but we we had a really good time and then I came down to New Orleans to go to law school. Well,
1: so how do you wind up, uh, you know, you seem to be try- kind of partying yourself out of school, going, you know, working your well, way down. I, the, uh, but yeah. then you wind up at Tulane Law School. How does that happen?
2: Well, because uh, I also had in my mind that that's what I should do. You know, I had an interest in it. And now, your family uh, and, have... and My whole family, We, everybody. In fact, that's what my father said when I quit halfway through my first time in law school. And he wasn't upset about it at all. My brother Norman broke it to him that, uh, you know, Gate Mouth came here to play when it was still the uh, 501 Napoleon Club,
1: right? Tipatina, as you're talking yes, about, yeah, right.
2: Yeah. And uh, Quint had called Quint Davis and wanted me to help put together a band. And
1: now, how was, did you how did you know Quent from, uh, from? Well, Tulane? I made
2: some trips down here from. We'd drive down for the jazz festival from Ruston. And I just somehow or another found a way, like, just to show up at the jazz festival and get to know him mm. and, and got to know, uh, oh, gosh, what's her name that died of cancer that was his partner? Um, can't think of
0: Allison Miner.
2: Allison, Allison Miner, yeah. Really. And yeah. then the fellow that uh, that was uh, the Parker Dinkins. Mm-hmm. I knew all three of them, but I knew Quint the best. And uh, so in the beginning, a lot of times when he had, uh, you know, the festival had only been going on for a year or two, uh-huh. you know, and, and uh, so a lot of times he knew I was very enthusiastic, and so when you'd have these artists in town, he didn't want them just to sit in the hotel rooms, and so I would take them and entertain them for the weekend and sort of be their good time buddy and get them there and make sure they want time and all that, and that's kind of what happened, you know, early in the game. You know, we've all been around a certain amount of time here, and I feel like I came along at a, at, at a, a time when certain things probably could never be repeated, that that happened and things like being on the ground floor of like wwoz and you know things like that because they had the first blues show on wwoz and it's when we used to have to go tape them Uh and had the first live one you know so i don't know how i fell into all that i know i know how i fell into it but it was really just the love and enthusiasm for the music and that goes all the way back to when i was seven eight nine years old
1: right that, that love for the music i was listening
2: to muddy waters and people like that and the uh, wlac and all that
3: uh-huh now hammond uh, you have to uh, you have to expose the most famous of the hometown heroes there that has a statue built in your hometown
2: oh yes i always uh, proud of it i put it in a post about it a lot uh, little walter little you know walter. Uh, <laughs> he he actually lived in marksville and alexandria there's some you know disputes sometimes with some people you have one record on chess and it says he's from Alexandria but Marksville is within 30 miles so you know it's he definitely had a particular place where they have the uh where they have the the marker for him that uh was where he lived at a certain time it's too bad it's in a in an area where I hope something doesn't happen to it but uh but you know, it'd be just like uh, Buddy Guy being in Lettsworth, you know. I mean, Lettsworth is just uh, not even a whistle stop. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you live there, it's kind of loose. You're kind of between Alexandria and, and Marksville or Lettsworth or whatever. And uh, But he actually lived in Alexandria. But, you know, he wasn't there all that long. He ran away from home pretty young, so... Uh, I imagine his family moved around and so I think it's the bona fides would say that he was in both Marksville and Alexandria.
1: Okay. Now at the time that you were uh, uh, tour managing Gate Mouth, was that had you already uh, were you already an attorney at that time or you were still in law school? Well,
2: see I was still in law school and uh, I had Gates Old Records and uh, and then they had this album called San Antonio Ballbuster on Red Lightning, which was a I really like the way it was mastered because uh-huh. I've heard I've heard other mastering of those same tunes. I think they sound best on that San Antonio Ballbuster record. It had a certain little sizzle to it the way they mastered it. And I love the record and uh And so I showed it to Gate. I don't think he even knew it was out. But he came here to play the 501 Napoleon Club and to help put together a band from him. Leon Medica, of course, was from my hometown, the the bass player we used that night. The
1: bass player from uh, Louisiana LaRue. Right, uh, they eventually, before
2: they were Louisiana LaRue, Mm -hmm. they were our backup band. And Leon was very good at being a manager. He was a manager for the band. It was the Jeff Pollard band. And he was the manager for the band. And one by one, I mean, and I'm I'm getting a little ahead of myself but one by one he got them all in the group you know uh-huh. we might have uh we might have somebody uh we didn't really need to know the guitar player but pretty early in the game we got Jeff Pollard there and 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 then you know one by one we had Bobby Campo Oh yeah a Horn and and uh and Rod Roddy on piano but you know we had, had other people before that just Leon out of that group being there. One by one, they were all there, so that was a great thing for them because they were just working around Baton Rouge. And it made it where they had a lot of work and they opened our show every night. And that worked so well for them that that's they got signed when we were in Nashville and uh, Don Light Agency came out to see them. And, and, uh, and, you know, they weren't a traditional band to be behind gate, but there was a real chemistry there even though uh, their music was a little bit more... Rock and rock and rock Mm. and roll, you know But it was actually a great amalgam that worked really well There was a lot of chemistry on stage And it was like Gate had his own Ed McMahon Because Leon Medica thought everything that came out of Gate's mouth was hilarious And so he'd always be laughing (laughs) And then that Ed Gate on because he started feeling like a comedian He could be Uh pretty funny, you know He could be kind of nasty or he could be really funny right? And uh, so that's something that really came off well, you know
1: now you know Carlo Nuccio, and and actually today is is the yeah, the, the, the first anniversary of the memorial of Carlo's passing. So uh, uh, God bless Carlo Nucio, We miss you so much. But uh, when I, I was, he was telling me one time about he was playing in some kind of I don't know. He said maybe kind of disco band or something that was playing in in Baton Rouge, and he said. That that band you're talking about, before they were LaRue, would play after them. And he said, man, those guys were fucking incredible.
2: Well, they had a real chemistry. And I think a place where it really works is, of course, I got Gate on the first. Uh, we were doing some stuff for Lone Star Beer. I became good friends with a guy named Jerry Retzloff. And Gate recorded three or four tunes that I produced over at Two uh, Toussaint's studio. They mm-hmm. would each be 45 seconds so they could make them into advertising. And he had one Cajun, one blues, one swing. And, and uh, uh, I guess one was a slow blues and maybe a shuffle. I can't remember. They were all great. I don't know whatever happened to the tapes, but they were playing those all over Texas. And then Lone Star, all of our dates, they were coming out and, and having Lone Star nights at the clubs. And uh, and so one thing led to another. Jerry Retzloff was in so tight with uh, Tony uh uh terry lacono whatever his name was from mm. austin city limits the early guy and uh next thing you know we were on the austin city limits and even though the gates had some good appearances on the austin city limits you never see this one i have it on video and uh jerry retzloff was still alive about two years ago uh he said that he was going to get me uh um, he'd get me masters of it but I'd really like to see it because Gate was brought back for six encores that night. And wow. most of the people in Austin didn't really know who he was. He was on a show with Delbert I McClinton. I was a
3: docent on that show, by the way. And if you look at the I'm, <laughs> I'm
1: in the
2: background.
3: So if you ever see the video, I can point me out. I look like a scarecrow. You was, were there that night? See, I, was I told you. He's six, a, seven, one, twenty-five. Yeah, no. Is
1: that like a yeah. rock and roll? <laughs> for what it's worth. I can't remember exactly what year was. Was
3: 77 uh, or what? Well, I first saw Gate at – my birthday, July second, nineteen seventy-five. I turned twenty, and you were in Antone's, and there was about twelve people there, and I was one of them. And uh, anyway, I was so drunk, and I was dancing. I'd never even touched a black woman dancing with this 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 uh, black woman, and Gate made up a song about me being this idiot white guy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so he anyhow, could do that, yeah. And so, but, but at the time. I, that was the, 75 was the very beginning in Austin City Limits and I worked for about two or three years as a, a docent and on some of the stuff with like Rykoot playing with uh, some of his guys but on the, the show you're talking about I was in I was there Wow <laughs> well, Crazy, see, It was unbelievable it Well was, and uh, he had that like little segment that's
2: really funny where he brings a little boy up there All and right. they have a picture they cut away to his wife and his, man, his wife I mean the little boy's mother and she's crying because uh, she's touched, and it's so funny. And Gate made it look like he was playing the instrument. Oh, okay. And uh, and Gate just loved kids; he always yeah. did, you know. So that was a great part of the segment. But he was brought back for about six encores. It was much more time. They had to cut it down. And I yeah. went over there to cut it down with them to edit the show. But uh, uh, that was a great jumping-off point for us. In fact, I don't kind of know what happened because Bill Ham saw that uh, from ZZ Top and. Mm-hmm. This was I'd been going with Gate for a few years by that time, but he wound up uh, having his agency book us for uh, through one of his guys that worked for him for a whole series of college dates, and that was towards the end of my time with Gate when uh, when that happened when we did those series of college dates. But for Bill Ham to be interested, he he showed me how small I was when I came over there to talk about that. They flew me in from New Orleans to Houston. And I sat out and cooled my heels in the, in the lobby for around four hours <laughs> really? I got to go in and see him for about 30 minutes. Let
1: you stew out oh, there. Oh, <laughs>
2: yeah, that way you really know who's got the power. Right,
3: right. But you know, it's a really funny thing is the night that I saw Gate Mouth, I, you know, the first time in Austin, Lady Bird Johnson owned the studio. And she was wandering around. I didn't so, know that. So Lady wow, Bird was standing there with her hand on her hip, looking at the gate mouth, and, and uh, he was great that uh, night. Oh my God, he was killing it. And so she was just had this you know kind of look on her face. So anyway, was she, she digging it? Oh, she loved it. Oh, okay. yeah, she was going crazy. Gate was so <laughs> young. I mean, Gabe the was first in his 50s. Two or three then, years, early 50s. She owned the station. It oh. wasn't the the university. It was on this. Campus of University of Texas, but it was actually owned by Lady Bird Johnson, and her wow. family. Yeah, right. And I can remember her looking up at Gate while playing his show with her hand on her hip, with this big old smile on her face. So nice. yeah. Yeah. I nice. never forgot.
2: I never knew that, but that's that's great. And uh, <laughs> actually, I looked at it when I went to mix that with him and put it together. I was like a little break from Gate. That's when he went and did a a, a State Department tour of Africa, and, uh-huh. I, and he wanted. He married my landlady, you know (laughs) So he wanted her to go with him over there And they (laughs) caused a lot of problems Through some of the countries in Africa Yeah And, uh, but anyway I was happy to let her have my seat Because, uh, I like much more the idea Of going going and putting that show together You know, uh, piecing it together The editing And, um and also, I got to hang out with Esther Phillips and some other people like that oh, during cool. that time period, because that's when Rosie's was going really well. Right. Now, I'm curious. And she came in there to play. That's where I first met her.
1: Oh, okay. Now, I'm curious. You know, you, you don't really have, like, you, you didn't play music as far as I mm-hmm. know, right? You, but Well, it,
2: I played saxophone, but I've been around so many great people that I almost won't admit it.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, I was going to ask, you know, how Alto did, and tenor. Oh, right on. Well, uh, alto is my first instrument as well. Um, now, how did you develop such a a, 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 critical ear? You know, you're talking about like this record was, uh, this, this release was mastered better than these others. I mean, well, I, I drive
2: was... myself crazy on that, even on Facebook. And I think sometimes I'm chasing my own tail. Like if I'm going to put a cut on, it doesn't have to be something that I record. It could be something... Somewhere else I'm going to listen to You know The same song Might be loaded on there Three times With a different picture Mm -hmm. I'll listen to all three And I might finally Put two of them on there And take one off Because I'm listening To see which one I still think Is the better transfer And I might be fooling myself But I think I can hear And there should be There shouldn't be Any variance, But I think I can hear A difference
1: Yep but like all your the you're producing all these records mixing all these records that that y'all you know black put out like over 100 records uh mm-hmm. dur- during the the time y'all were active and you were the primary producer on all that stuff but uh it's just right just well from- I had
2: something that uh and uh I, I don't you'd have to ask some of the guys why but I had a everybody I recorded I had their confidence enough where they didn't argue with me about what take we were going to use And it wasn't cuz you know, it wasn't because I was oppressive. Mm-hmm. It's because I found that a lot of times musicians, a lot of times themselves, they might be thinking of the part they played and they're not hearing the, the whole thing the same way I did. And, I, you know, they might, be, they might not have played their bass the best on it, you know. But if there's a certain feel that I thought was really good, I never had any pushback on that. They went with it every time, you right. know. And I think it's because uh, it's almost like they're almost looking for someone to make those decisions somebody like Bobby Radcliffe he was so unsure of himself later on when I recorded him he really wanted somebody to do that in fact he'd come up to me all the time am I really any good you know and, and all that kind of stuff and, and you wouldn't just you wouldn't just be shitting me you know I mean am I really lousy or you know and, and uh, so you know because I think he'd been beat down so much at yeah. one time but uh, I, 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 I don't know what it is I know that I hear things really well and I tune into the least little thing, you know, pretty well. I mean, a lot of engineers are able to do that, like David Farrell was pretty good about when you'd have a whole track there and, 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 and you could still hear that one string was out of tune on a stringed instrument or mm-hmm. something, you know, and uh, and some might not realize there's some little part that somebody's playing that, they, you know, you might get in the studio and they might say... Really? That's what you've been playing all this time on that? <laughs> That's wrong, you know? And uh, and uh, and But what I would try to do is uh, I thought where I had some of my best ability was on getting a good performance. And uh, a lot of times the way that worked was building the momentum the right way in the studio. We would have an agreed group of tunes and all that. I'd call the order that they'd be in, by the way I felt at the moment, almost like uh, teeing up the records on a record show, mm-hmm. on a radio show, I mean. Right. And uh, and I would try to keep the momentum going because there would always be a certain point in a, ses- a session where one of those things where that's what you've been playing all this time. You know, you by the time you got that part worked out, then a lot of times the spontaneity was gone. Uh-huh. So that's a time when you have to be able to say, well, look, I don't want to say we didn't make it. Go and let them cut that and, and say, yeah, that's pretty good. We can always do it again later. I wouldn't lie to them. And then, you know, then go to something that you know they were going to get really fast and it was easy and get that momentum going again. And then day three, say, you know that tune we were doing on the first day and you had the problems with it and then we flew with it so much and got it right, but, we, we you know, I think we could do it better. First take, right. it would be all there because the feeling was back, the energy was back. And the problem was gone, uh-huh. and they hadn't overplayed it. You know, there's some people that you could. There's uh, some people that you could go over and over and over and over and over and over again with, and then there are people like Robert Ward that you just have to be prepared when you go in there because it's almost like if he has to do something too many times, you hurt his feelings. Yep. You like he failed. Right. You know? And there are people who couldn't really overdub like Snooks. You know, Snooks. If you overdubbed with him, like if you want him to. Say I love the first half. Your solo, let's maybe we keep the second half. I mean the first half, and let's pick it up there and take the second half. That didn't work with him because the tones wouldn't match. Huh. you know he was not good at that, and uh, so you kind of have to really know what you're dealing with the psychology. So I look at it beyond being a traffic cop. Uh, you have to have people's confidence in that your decisions are good, and I was just stubborn enough where I was sure of my decision so it could be convincing without being oppressive right and um i think i was right on that most of the time the only thing i beat myself up about is probably i can get some better mixes i mean the mixes are good but you know you go back later why didn't i push that bass a little bit more that's one of the hardest instruments to place anyway is the bass to me you know and uh when you have the whole all the band in there and, uh, and then I have I've been influenced a little bit by the way some of the earlier records didn't have as much bass as like people carry today. You know. Yeah. I mean, but I can go back and listen to a, a record by. Um, Van Morrison, that's who I'm trying to think of. I can go back and listen to a record of his from the 70s, and it doesn't have the kind of bass that people carry today. You know? Well,
1: you know what about having the bass pushed up loud is <laughs> it's the first thing that makes you turn the volume down Yeah. On, on a record. So if you don't have the bass overly loud, you can turn the whole thing up. And you get so many highs, and you get such a, a broad spectral response. By the time, like, if you listen to like something, a classic one I always think of is uh, 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 "Rise and Fall of, of uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders mm-hmm. from Mars." The it's it's very thin on the bottom end, and he even has a note uh, to be played at maximum volume, and you can turn that record up really fucking loud. Before the bass gets so heavy that you know what I'm saying, yeah. it's it's like it's it's a real th- so there's really something. Yeah, I love
2: I love a rock solid bottom in there, and I like a lot of bass, and I love a jukebox type of bass but i was always uh, i guess you know when i think of chess records and some of those things they weren't as bass heavy and all that and a lot of those early chicago blues records kind of weren't as much that way there's a way that a bass can come in and eat up all the air right
1: well yeah that's what i'm saying you don't want it to do that
2: and so i like for those things to pop and speak Uh and so that would always kind of make me pull it back sometimes i kick myself and think you know I should have had more than other times. It seems just about right. And sometimes it was just right. Like yeah. if I think of Earl King and uh, <laughs> and think of a tune sort of like uh, Love is the Way of Life, which is one of my things I enjoyed the most that I cut with him. And I think a lot of good decisions were made there because I signed Earl the piano because when he made the demo for me, I liked what he was playing on the piano. A lot of times he'd give me stuff just by himself mm-hmm. playing the piano or the guitar. And I thought, you know, well, we know what. You have to figure a lot of times. Two Saint, them didn't even let Earl play guitar. But I liked him having the guitar on the records. I love the law, the rawness, and the attitude and everything. Right. And you know he he had a tendency to be bend something a little out of tune or whatever. That didn't bother me all that much. I'd try to. I got a lot of good solos out of him. You know he could be inconsistent live, but I got a lot of great solos out of him. But uh, that was a, a cut. You know I don't want to get too far off track, but. To have Snooks play the guitar solo on that, a lot of people people think it was Earl, to have Snooks play the guitar solo on that, I just think it turned out differently than if Earl had played the guitar solo on it, and yet what he's playing on the piano is so integral. And it's mostly the turnarounds, what he's playing in the turnarounds okay. in school. You know, uh, I've had sessions that I had Tarkinowski on there, and he probably, he was hearing Earl's part and messing with him a little bit, you know, teasing him and saying, ah, that's not right, and Earl gets started. Getting kind of aggravated. It's right. I wrote it, you know. And, and he said, no. He said, uh, uh, that's off, man. That's off. And and Earl was getting kind of aggravated going, man, I'm telling you, that's not off. He said, well, if it's not off, it's Black Flag, you know, because he'd be talking about his clone that he had on, you know, with him uh, leaning in so close, you know. And that's just tart being funny. But I wound up uh, on the tune that I'm talking about, assigning Earl to play the piano on it because I liked what he's – it was great. It was New Orleans and at the same time as Cro-Magnon, you yeah. know, and I kind of liked what he was playing on the piano. You know,
3: and as a, a, and it if was a would have from played it, it have been Who has uh, loved that song, figured out those changes and went, wait, did he what, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just insane, right? And so I, I wrote a chart of it and I was like, this is one of the most ingenious tunes I've ever heard in my career. I mean, this is where going from like, be you know, be 7 seventh. We're we're jumping around, and it just it was, it, it just drove me crazy. I was like, this is the most genius thing I've ever heard, you know. <laughs> and and uh, I just remember thinking, as much as I had already loved her before that, but I heard "Love Is the Way of Life," and I've been playing that song now for thirty years. Nobody can play it by ear. So yeah. I would never lay that on. I would never. I right.
1: wouldn't call that tune. I, I, uh, I, I, would not call,
3: I would not do that to you. My right. friend is one of the greatest right. space players in the world. Um, I would not do it because it makes no
1: You're not going to hear the changes coming. There yeah, is yeah, not. Yeah, yeah.
3: And you know, and Torkinowski's wrong. It's genius. Yeah. You know, it is wrong. He, he's doing, that stuff does not make any sense on that bridge when he's turning around. He's going from four to one <laughs> to, to one to four and stuff. That. That, that's as good as it gets but I'm
2: luckily sure. it's kind of funny because uh tark made it kind of a joke out of it you know uh on on sessions like that when he would say uh well that's off man and then finally well if it's if it's not off it's black flag right right right, <laughs> right. <know>? right. <laughs> because that's some damn bug repellents you have now, on that, that
3: to me was around
2: just... your uh, for, for your cologne is yes. bug that's repellent. That's yes. gold
3: standard stuff man
2: But, so, I don't know, I got off track there. Oh, that's okay. uh, But, see, I I love, like, on that sexual telepathy, I like all the records I did on Earl, but I love it uh, on that sexual telepathy album. We got a really great tone with him on the shuffles that he played. And when he did that uh, uh, song about the casino, uh, the opening track, I can't think of the name of it right now, he plays, uh, really, to me, the most unbelievable solo in it, you know. So Earl... Love I thought I I found uh, I got a lot of good performance out of him and a lot of great stuff on the guitar and I learned another thing from Earl though and that was one day I wanted him to come in and do some overdubs on a couple of things and you know nobody else was going to be there and uh, I said no I need to get you in tomorrow oh man I don't know about that you know I said well I know about it you need to come in i got it booked and I'm not going to have you here long but I need you here for a few hours and he'd go, man, you're going to be sorry. And i go, no, I'm not going to be sorry. And, and I knew Earl pretty well, you mm-hmm. know. And I, on the, a particular occasion, I found out, it was on the third album, but uh, I found out I was wrong because he couldn't put together eight bars of music that day. Yeah. And it was uh, he was a person who was very subject to sort of where, for lack of a better term, whether the planets and the stars and all that were in line you know, okay. as to what day he'd come if His head wasn't where it was supposed to be. And so I let him go. I found out he was right on that. But most of the time, the good thing about it was as much procrastination as he would do and set all these false dates with me. And we recorded a lot of brand new material. And he would bring me these songs like uh, it all went down the drain and all that kind of stuff and uh and i heard them all and they're just him on the guitar farm you know uh real crude demos when he would finally meet the call uh-huh. and uh and so when we had a set then i would eventually when we had a whole set of stuff then i eventually set the date and setting a date is like picking a good day to go fishing you don't really know yeah. what's going to be a good day to go sure. fishing so the real deal that I thought I was good at was figuring a way to make it a good day to go fishing. The way to make it a good day to go fishing is to have the right chemistry and the right people for the right song. Because, like, say on uh, on that album uh, that we were just talking about, uh, "Sexual Telepathy," there are three different bands on it, and I thought it was important to make the choice of which band was used on which. You know, and uh,
1: like a real record producer,
2: right? <laughs> yes. And we didn't have to cut it all in one day. I could have three three different getting to people together and like the, you know
3: result, all went way, down the
2: drain was cutting dallas we only cut two tunes and we were supposed to just do one that day and then I, heard, I was sitting at anson's house and i heard him play an iron cupid on an acoustic guitar i said we're going to do that today you, you know, he never man. let me hear it, you know.
1: There you go. Well, uh, uh, fellas, I'm looking at my watch and I'm looking at our drinks and it seems like, uh, you know, we always like to take a break in the middle of the show here to refresh our cocktails. So uh, we're going to do that and uh, we'll be right back. I
0: totally took it. Love is the way of life But you got to treat, you got to treat it You just got to treat it right Can't dog it around Cause it'll let you down when you need love most. Love will surely change its course and your boundaries. Really That's what you sow. That's what you sowho. Cause love is a way of life, it'll always be. Love is the way of life. It's here for you and me. Life is just the art of living. The is on have their way of giving. Now, if you give your share. Your love will be there And the rest of your life Will be sunshine and bright Cause you know you've done The thing that's right The thing that's right
1: And we're back Back with Mr. Dick Deluxe Back with our guest Mr. Hammond Scott I am Renee Coleman. And uh as always on the uh, Feral Zone or the Troubled Man podcast, we, uh, we are a listener-supported operation. We, we want to thank all of our, uh, our supporters and especially want to give a shout-out to all of our, our Patreon patrons because uh, we're, we're building up a, a solid uh, core of, of, of Patreon patrons who are supporting us week in and week out just as they're listening to these podcasts week in and week out. And uh, we do appreciate that. We have, uh, you know, our costs. We have our cocktails, which uh, we consider part of, uh, you know, operating costs, just like uh, buying tape for, uh, for a recording studio or anything, you know. Uh, we always like to say uh, uh, this podcast runs on uh, drinks and notebooks. And uh, so anyway, we, uh, to, that, to that end, we have uh, uh, PayPal and Venmo links in the show notes of every show as well as in the Facebook uh, pinned post right there at the top of the Facebook page. And so avail yourselves of that. Uh, and uh, speaking of Facebook, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, uh, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give us five stars, it helps us out a lot, costs you nothing. Um, uh, what else? Glad we, you're telling me all that yes, because yeah.
2: you're giving me ideas about what I need to do.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we still have the uh, Trouble Men podcast t shirts are available right there in the, the, the link in the, the show notes of every show as well. And uh, let's see uh, uh, The day after the show comes out I'll be doing a, a big show With uh, Ed Volker From the Radiators uh, Backed by the Iguanas As well as Michael Skinkas We're playing a, a whole program Of Dylan songs on at the uh, September 1st Is Dylan Month At uh, Chickie Wawa So wow. September 1st at Chickiwawa Wawa It'll be... Uh, uh, Ed Volker and the iguanas. Uh, come, come check that out. Uh, that seems like enough of that. So uh, back to our guest, Mr. Hammond Scott. Now, Hammond, let's circle back to, uh, to your upbringing in, in Alexandria. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, our, 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 our guest co-host was saying it's quite a magical... Uh I,
3: I think it's a, a, one of the great... Southern American stories And you know My family Not wildly different The Wilson family Outside of Memphis But you know Lawyers Doctors uh, Judges And so forth And then black sheep Hammond Dick You know And
1: well, <laughs> And
2: I
3: knew I was
1: Yeah you could tell <laughs> But anyway Tell us a bit Try but
2: to I, I honored my, my thought I had uh, Two of the most wonderful parents You could ever have nice. I mean uh, One of the things That I hate to think of Is I'll never be able to Uh, Probably be as good a father As my father was
1: Oh That's really nice of you to say
2: But uh, But uh, He was everything To me To look up to Completely different world You know he liked to dance and he came out and saw some of our bands and he would always dance in time. That was the most wonderful thing, but yeah. he had a thing he did called the federal stomp and it was awful because yeah. he was a federal judge. Oh, okay. And, uh, he called it the federal stomp as a joke, you know, <laughs> and he would kick each leg way out here and it would all be in time. That yeah. was a good thing. There's a lot of white people are jumping all out of time, you know? Right, right. And, uh, but anyway, I thought it was a great town to live in, uh, just to take a second just to mm-hmm. explain what it's like to be a kid yeah, there. Yeah, do. Um, we had Bayou Robert running right through uh, town, right through the middle of town. And I could leave my house on a Saturday and take a string and some bacon and uh, a bucket and go over there and go crawfishing and uh, catch a lot of crawfish in the bucket. You'd ride your bike over there. You could ride all over town and I had exciting rides because we had always had an agenda to go to Sears Roebuck was one of them because we could look at the boats they had there and the boat motors, and they always had like an Argon. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a Hammond B three. It was whatever their little cheap organ was, but I used to
1: love to. They had those, those play uh, it and Magnus chord organs. It was yeah. like a fan, fan driven. It was basically <laughs> uh, they had uh, reeds like in a harmonica yeah. and a fan going. Yes, I have one at my house. I yes, love those and things. I loved
2: <laughs> I loved all the Silvertone stuff, and we all sure. know that we love Dan Electro and all that later. But it was always wonderful to go there, and uh, you ride your bike downtown, and you know you go to uh, Allen's bicycle shop, and and. Uh, Buy something cool for your bike because you'd be riding a swim with one of those big tanks on it, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, and the great thing though, which uh, Richard was talking about, we had this great hotel in town. Luckily, it's had a lot of different ownership uh, that's kept it going. And uh, you know, there's easier places to stay, but uh, it's a beautiful hotel, and it's. Uh, I used to love to go in there, and I still do and they have a really good restaurant there. It's the Bent, Hotel Bentley. Mm. And the same building that my father's office was in, which was the Guarantee Bank, Mr. Bentley, I never knew him because he died pretty pretty young. But uh, he was a, you know, a guy who had made a lot of money in timber. We had several timber magnates up there, and I knew two of them, like Parish Fuller, and I knew the Krolls. Mm. And they were big timber magnates, and there was a lot of business up there. And... The Bentley Hotel, the reason it got built, they used to have the European Hotel and a couple other hotels in Alexandria, and uh, but Mr. Bentley, Joe Bentley, he was a pretty down-to-earth guy, but one of the wealthiest guys in town, and he went to the European Hotel, or one of them, I don't remember which one, and they wouldn't let him in the dining room without a coat on, so he built his own hotel, and it was right, he had already built the Guarantee Bank building, which was our only skyscraper, which was 10 stories, and uh, And, of course, i go to my father's office because they always had a lot of good supplies there, and they had these dictaphones that had the little green records in them. And so, you know, you can make a lot of trick records and all that kind of stuff and and have fun with it and shenanigans and go, you know, raid all of the uh, pencils and pens and tablets. But go across the Bentley Hotel, well, I mean, it was really cool. It's not as cool as that now, but it's beautiful if you ever go in there. If you ever go through Alexandria, it's one of these little small towns that— Instead of being vibrant, sort of like the North Shore, where most of the little towns there, you know, they're pretty moneyed and they've been able to keep them up like Madisonville. Mm-hmm. Alexandria's one of those sort of dying towns in a way where so much of what was beautiful, like the beautiful high school I went to, they don't even build them like that anymore. It looked like the Pentagon. Yeah. And they used all this marble and and uh, has it was the first ho- – it gram- well, it's high school. It was the first uh, – high school in the country to have an escalator wow and it was a Westinghouse. it's still in there and they had these beautiful materials all this wood it was an exciting place to go to school and uh but then that bentley hotel i don't want to say too much about it but they had the whatever you call the guys that meet you out front and they have the shako on like a guy in a marching band
1: Right, the the bell captains.
2: Yeah, the bell captains. Right. They'd have the feathered hats on and a big shako, like the mm-hmm. like the leading guys in right, high school right. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was really something. Now they don't have that now. You go in and you know, kind of like it's like got to make it in on your own now. Right. But
1: well, in New Orleans, they had like the the Fairmont Roosevelt Felt Hotel had had all that kind of thing when I was yeah, a kid. Still, still, got still going of on. I my
3: mother at the Blue Room and everything.
2: Yeah,
1: oh, way yeah. Back. oh yeah, there you, you go. Know. You,
3: you know, know d- uh, not to interject, but. My father was played with Biddy Goodman's orchestra in the Blue Room in the in the nineteen early forties and then he and my mother spent their honeymoon there and so. But what I would love you to do one of my favorite things Is every time He mentions his mother He explains The pronunciation Of her oh, name Oh yes well, So that's please explain she, yes. And tell us a bit yo, About yo, your mother I don't even know If
2: anybody even gets it Because a lot of people uh, Aren't from New Orleans and that is, I think that's But her name is B-L-A-N-C-H-E And most people say Blanche Uh-huh And she hated that You know Because she wasn't Blanche She was Blanche And okay. we understood that In New Orleans Because Maison Blanche Maison yes. Blanche You know And uh, it was French And it wasn't, you, on, it wasn't putting on heirs or anything she was from New Orleans she was from a very uh, nice family uh-huh. and her dad was a her mother was a writer and and her dad was a um, uh, an attorney and there's a whole story there I could have a whole chapter just on that but uh, but uh, he's thinking it's so funny Richard is because I never fail whenever I even have a picture <laughs> of her I always go never. and my late dear mother Blanche Scott pronounce the French way, as in Maison Blanche, you uh-huh, know, because I don't want people to think she's Blanche Scott, because yeah, she wasn't. I, I'm, right, so, right, I'm right,
3: so happy you right. cleared that up. And, right. and, and, uh, nice, and nice. so
2: that is one of my little quirks. I try to explain that. There's something that I've never put on Facebook since so I put a lot of things on there, and they do have a blacktop thing that Graham Clark started, which I thought that was wonderful. He called me up and asked me if he could start it. I said, I'd love it, you know, right. and uh, but, you uh, and he's an interesting guy anyway from Mississippi. There's a story that I love. I'm going to tell it here a little bit. I never knew my grandfather. And he was, uh, you know, an amazing man, it seems. And he was a lawyer. And he had a lot of fame in his youth in Alexandria. And, of course, he went off to World War One, And, you know, he became a major in World War One. And I don't know anything about his exploits there. But when he came back, uh, he went to, people used to take trips to new roads and all that back and places like that all these little country towns uh he was from new orleans but uh the lady he married that was my grandmother she was from new roads and so she would always have to go back once they were living in alexandria he was in a law firm in alexandria they would always make these little trips and when you took trips back in the country back then you had largely gravel roads instead of highways and you would usually bring a pistol along because it wasn't like you could just call the cops, you know. Right. And so you'd want to protect your family. And it just so happened that uh, he uh, he always thought he was going to die young because uh, uh, he had been told that by what he called soothsayers. Mm. And so his wife, my grandmother, uh, always knew that. And uh, sure enough, it happened. And uh, anyway, hadn't been back from the war too many years, like 1926. It's my father's 10th birthday and uh, they were been in New Roads for the day and came back, and he was getting undressed for bed and uh, talking to my grandmother, and uh, he had had a gun with him that day, and I've had a miraculous thing even happen. I don't want to make it too long, but uh, uh, anyway, before I knew this part, all I knew was that uh, he, he uh, had this gun, and I've talked about this on Facebook. Uh, he put the gun in his drawer that night, and always, all these years I've always thought, yeah, wouldn't there have been a safety or something on it? But he threw a heavy set of keys into the drawer, and the keys landed on the gun, and the gun went off, and the bullet, the the barrel was just in the right place mm. where the bullet came through the drawer and struck him right below the heart. Oh, and so he died at the age of 37 in my father's, on my father's 10th birthday. Oh. And so my father ascended to being the man of the house at age 10. So he never had a childhood, but I look up to him so much. And shortly after his death, he had always thought he was going to die. So in 1920, he uh, died young, and in 19, he carried maximum insurance. And in 1924, he had written a letter about a year and a half before his death that is in case of my death type of letter. Mm-hmm. And in the first part of the letter, he writes out how the kids should be raised and what to do in time of war and all this advice wow. to his wife. But the second half of the letter was, I think, the greatest explanation of what love is other than what's in uh, what's in the Bible and uh, uh, Corinthians 13 and uh, it was really it was so touching I never met the man I can't ever get through I have the letter I can't ever get through the letter without getting a frog in my throat yeah and uh, when I finally got married late in life I read that letter to my wife on the first date that we had of course my wife Fell mad in love with me, being the big romantic, you know. Right. But I read this letter to. Her, I said, I just thought you might be interested in this to see what love looks like, you know. And oh man, it really worked. But anyway, uh, I want to talk about that in there because so much of what I think it is uh, the type of man I'd like to be if I was a better person than I am is in that letter, and it's so touching. And so beautifully done, especially when it gets to the part, you know, about and now, my my dear, for the last time, indeed, you know, uh, you know, I want you to know that that through you, I tasted all the greatest pleasures in life, and uh, and when you take, a, uh, you know, he wanted to remarry and all that, which you didn't, but you know, uh, when you take one of those walks like we used to take at night, and you know what he describes, what you'll be hearing out. You know, on the walk and all that Saying, when you hear that You'll know it's me waiting for you Evermore in the realms above, you know and, no. But he's quoting all this poetry Right And all kinds of other things And I'm just thinking, God, you know I'm such a clod I'll never be that romantic, you know <laughs> now, now, wait a and, minute
3: No, I would like to add this and I would like
2: to have that in the book But I don't want to
3: disclose well, that too much to anybody By the way, I would like to add this If I ever write it uh, At this point This young man uh, uh, Going for walks every night in Madisonville and uh so not that different, right? So you yes. are leaving your home and you're going down the street and you're Usually in the, the cicadas or are screaming and tell us a little bit about your uh you know you are you're 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 your, your talking to the, you know and this is one of the reasons I love you man because you know you you you're, you're telling me and and us who know you I'm walking, it's dark, and I'm a walker, right? I like the scary
2: places, to tell you the truth. He
3: is, as we speak, within the last week, walked down the very same. Right. Talk about that a little bit, please. Well,
2: you know, I think of, um, I have a lot of things that go on in my head. I don't want to be too personal about it. Like I say, I know the things I aspire to are things like a man I never knew, like my (laughs) grandfather, you know. And I, I feel something very strong about coming from that kind of background. And I hope it came through with the artists that I work with and the type of person I was working with them. But, uh, but you know, to be into the record business, we had glory years and then, uh, you know, had years of losing everything too, you know. And, and then you all the people start dying off. That breaks your heart. And so I reflect on a lot of things at night when when I walk. And uh, I don't know exactly what Richard's wanting me to say. I probably have talked about it somewhere on Facebook. But uh, I really like to go to the loneliest and the most beautiful uh, spots late at night and have this serenity to work through my head how I wound up where in the hell I am now, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it's uh, because I can spot all my mistakes. I'm my own hardest critic. I used to say to the artist all the time, I used to say, look, I'm your biggest fan, so let's get that straight, because otherwise I wouldn't be spending this money, you know. You, if you had the money, you probably wouldn't even spend it on your own self, you know. Right. And, uh, and I would say, I'm your greatest fan. So if I'm your greatest fan, wouldn't it make sense that I'm going to be your hardest critic? And so I would just tell them like it is, you know. That uh, I jumped away from what you're talking about, but it's a little bit of the type of thinking. I even reflect on the records that we made. I hear all the mistakes I made. I'm probably my own hardest critic. That I could have mixed this a little better, that a little better. But one thing I think I caught was I like it raw to begin with. All the records that moved me the most. When like I was old, young, were bastard. pretty raw. Oh, baby, now like you could have a T-Bone Walker session, and they, you know, they had one mic and they had it in just the right place. So I don't claim to have ever gotten it right like that, but I've, I've a few times have gotten it pretty close. And there are a lot of things that could be better. But you know, the funny thing is, if you talk to B.B. King about his early records, which are some of my favorite records, oh, yeah. they influenced so many people. He would tell you he liked his later records better because he knew more. And his early records were so raw, but we like the raw stuff, yes, you know? Yes. And that's what I was always going for. So it was okay for me to be a little screwed up in the mix you know
1: we we love the harebrained element you know and and
2: i also had a thing of uh like i like when i did the thing with greg piccolo i liked you know opening the glass doors where the horns were Uh and having the rest of the band bleed into the horns you know because then you get that kind of a room sound yet you still you still were somewhat isolated you know and and uh and and so like I'm I'm jumping all over the place, but uh, that's okay. You I'm know, about to grab the, late, the
1: wheel back from you guys because Dick late night. Is, those is, late yeah, I night walks. Go six, I, I want
3: to talk about Cavs.
1: Cavs. Those uh, late well, uh, night
2: walks are the same kind uh, of thing, though the well, craziness.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I have three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about you being an uh, assistant DA. Okay. Uh, now, was, when you first started, was that under uh, Harry Connick? Yes, or, it was. Okay. That, uh,
2: that was a perfect place for me to be at the time.
1: Okay. So you came straight out of Tulane. Was that Was uh-huh. at your first job? Now, yeah. Now, so what year was well, that? What my
2: first job is. my first job as an law field. As an attorney. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's and I'm that about. was a great place to do that. And what One year thing. was that? Uh, That was in the early 80s. Early 80s, okay. Yeah, what happened was uh, I was out on the road with and I decided to quit one day, and he he couldn't believe it, you know, that I was going to quit. I had a whole string of jobs for him. I said he had kind of made me mad, even though we got along really well and never had a contract. And I just said, I started thinking about I should go back to law school. And I went back, and I knew it was around New Year's of 79. I thought I needed to go back and finish. And uh, so I just... Uh, gave notice, and I said, I've got all these dates for you here, all the contracts and everything, and I left, and I went back to law school, and that was my job coming out of law school, and I liked it because that was a more exciting area of the law. You didn't make much money, but it was an exciting area of the law, and I spent most of my time in appeals because I guess I have a cerebral nature, I guess, and, uh, but it's where they assign you,
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: got to work on records while I was there. And, oh, no But kidding. you'd have to be in court the next morning. That was right. the only thing that was tough. You know, like uh, when we did that first Daryl King, I had to be in front of a judge every morning the next day, and we took quite a few days to do it. And, uh, but um, that was uh, an exciting place to work because uh, whenever I'd read newspaper stories, especially criminal things, I always kind of wanted to know the rest of the story. You know, they would just mm-hmm. kind of tell you enough to get you curious, and you wouldn't know the rest of the story. I'd see all the horrible murder pictures right, and everything, uh, and I wouldn't right. know the rest of the stories. So the one thing I declined was I was offered to go in so I'd understand, better how to question people about an autopsy to come in and watch one. I didn't want to watch that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You now, can't...
2: those guys, they're a different breed because they're the type of person that, when I have good memories of Wholesome Bakery in Alexandria, which had started in Alexandria, Wholesome uh-huh. Bread, when I have good memories of uh, Wholesome Bread and all that and the smell when you went by there, uh, some of the people that are uh, dealing with these dead bodies if they go back and think of the you know (laughs) that dead bodies that that bomb and fluid to them that's like fresh baked bread you never get that smell
1: out of your your brain I never wanted to do that you know but,
2: uh, but I found that it was it was the only place I ever worked that you could go to lunch with your friends other DA's and come back and there'd be a guy down on the floor with his arm behind his back you know and the cops would be on him because they would have made the mistake of coming in and trying to lie to the investigators. And the whole time they're lying, trying to cover for their friend, and give him an alibi, they're running them, you know, saying, well, you know, let's right, see if we've right. got any warrants out on this guy. And next thing you know, he would be on the floor. Right. It's an exciting place to work, you know. Now,
1: now how long did you work uh, at the DA's office? I was
2: at uh, about eight years.
1: Okay, and that was enough. And, and I wound
2: you... up in appeals uh, okay. because uh, – uh, that was an area they thought I'd be good. I was requested to go in there. And so I got lucky. I got to go before the Louisiana Supreme Court more than most people I ever get to do, and the um. U.S. Fifth Circuit and all that. And, you know, because when you're in jail, you got a lot of time to try to get out of jail. So sure. I'd have to answer all that. And I can't tell you how many cases that I thought, oh boy, we're in trouble when I would read the appellate brief. And then all of a sudden, of course, what they didn't know, uh, I ordered up that entire record of the trial and i read every word of it you know and looked at everything that everybody looked at I, I, we're not in trouble at all yeah they left all this out right, you know right, right, and right. uh so uh <laughs> we're true, in a man. good place you know so it was a good experience but then it started being I'd already started blacktop, and it started being where you had to make a choice uh i was, I was talking to the people around her and it was like look you need to kind of make a choice you're gonna go into this all the way are you going to just do this on the side because you need to have enough records coming out where you get paid. Right. And you're going to get paid if you've always got something they want.
1: Well, well, you know, when the Iguanas were early, uh, like once we got out of our our first record deal, I thought, well— uh, maybe we'll start our own label. And mm-hmm. I, I called up uh, Carlo Ditta, who had yeah. Orleans Records, g- a good friend of mine, and I, I pitched him. He goes, Renee, you don't want to start a record label. <laughs> he goes, and he explained that. He said, you know, if you just have one record, uh, you you know, you're not going to get paid. The only way you get paid is if you can threaten them with something, you know, withholding really with more merchandise. And I was like, oh, okay. And, right, you know, right, right, I used right. to think
2: it was very interesting, Bill Nallen at Rounder Records, mm-hmm. and I don't want this to be boring, but Bill Nowlin, all the years at Round of Records were around. They were around before we were. And he was good friends. He'd come stay at my house and all that. And he used to always say, because it got more and more complicated, you know, like it, when you had that uh, record store down there and the quarter uh, that carried every kind of music. Uh, what was it that went out of business? Uh, tower. Tower, mm-hmm. yeah. And it used to have a lot more record stores like that, like you don't sure, now, you yeah. know that would have they go into back catalog and all that and you'd always have some guy that loved the blues upstairs and he would be featuring the blues record soon they started figuring out well look why should we just because we like that record feature it if we can sell you some real estate and so selling the real estate was we'll take in a hundred of that record if you spend several thousand dollars on advertising. for a listening post and all oh, that, you know, right, and to feature right. that record, and you do that all over the country, next thing you, know, you spend, next thing you know, you spend a lot of records. And we used to give away like twenty-five hundred records to begin with, day one, you mm-hmm. know, to service records radio stations. We were trying to do what the major labels did in a in a smaller way, right? And uh, so uh, I found that uh, it was pretty daunting because they were trying to make up for a shortfall they had by selling real estate, as they called it back gotcha, then, you gotcha. know, and, and, and instead of giving away something free, a spot that was important, and so Bill Nallon used to say to me, he used to say, you know, there's an experiment I want to do. I'm not sure who I'll do it with or when I'll do it, but I want to put out a record on somebody and do no promotion, no buying real estate, no records given away free, no advertising, no working any dates, and I'm thinking... And that'll be the person that'll never be on your label again, you right, know, because right. who yeah. wants that?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah, But his point it's was... It turned out that was me. Oh, that was <laughs> you,
2: Dick. <Okay. laughs> and his point was, he said, well, I just want to find out if we'd make more money doing it that way, which is kind of what R. Hooli did.
1: Okay. And maybe, maybe Chris any came any out
2: or, better because right? he just put yeah. the records out there. And if you were into uh, Clifton Chenier,
1: he records. bought the record, right, you right,
2: know, what right. his sessions were all done in one afternoon. And there was not really any promotion to speak of. Because you really get in pretty deep, you know. You end sure, up. It's, sure, a bad, sure. uh, it's a bad. It's a bad business model to begin with, because the margins are thin and the risk is high. Right.
1: Well, so the other thing I want to ask you about is, uh, you know. Uh, Kelly Keller is sort of the the patron saint of this podcast. Uh, She's a great friend of ours. I put her
2: on not too long ago because I have one picture of her that I love in the studio.
1: So, yes, uh, Kelly Keller worked for Blacktop for... My first uh,
2: employee, and I remember the first day she came and knocked on the door. I don't forget who sent her over to me. And she came and knocked on the door and looked kind of nervous, and she had on this leather coat that she used to wear all the time, uh a short leather coat, and came in. I started trying to figure, what am I going to give her to do because I feel better doing it myself you know Uh but she got me to let go and she was the one that brought Heather on Heather West you know but but, uh, uh, Heather was wonderful to have around she was so enthusiastic and she was a music person she was the perfect person and she you know she was really good and you know we branched out from there but uh, but uh, there were so many things I loved about her and it was so natural that she wound up down there you know and lee circle run the circle, the circle
1: bar. bar yes yeah
2: and uh so you know um i yeah. used to think she looked like bianca
1: bianca when Jagger. she was young yeah sure, i used yes. to think she kind of looked like that. her yeah, you know has, has that, has, and that olive could, complexion yeah
2: and, and she had this exotic look about her did, but i didn't yeah. have any romantic thing going with her we were sure. just very good friends sure, you yeah, know yeah. and uh um uh, I don't know. We had a lot of great people like that because Heather was a dynamo,
1: right? Or, and you
2: had to watch it because Heather might be trying to tell me what to do after. While, she,
1: I could know? see that. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's kind of was, bossy. <laughs> that's why I was just telling. Uh,
2: that's why I was just telling Dave Clements out there. You know, when they went out of saying, yeah. uh, maybe you were lucky. You know that uh, it didn't all pan out uh, because you know she, you'd she, probably be getting bossed she'd around still a lot. Be
1: running your ass right now. Yeah, <laughs> <know?
2: laughs>
3: we
2: well, had a lot of
1: wonderful times. That's, time, sure, that's
3: so. fabulous. <laughs>
1: Well, so so then the other thing, and it, I'm jumping all over the place. Oh no, so we, sorry we, to make it hard. We always do. No, no, uh, uh, I like it hard. Um, uh, but you
2: wanted to go back to the DA's office. Well, no,
1: no, no, up. no. We're 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 moving on. Uh, so uh, you you put out a record on Nappy Brown. You mentioned Nappy Brown. Oh, yeah. So
2: what a character. Uh, the,
1: the, the the record was uh, uh, something going to jump out the bushes
2: and grab you. That's and right. grab
1: you. So I wound up, uh, through really weird circumstances, being on the road as the backing band on this uh, blues review that was uh, Johnny Adams, Wayne Bennett, and Nappy Brown. And we had the same backing band that would, would back all three of those acts up. Yeah. And you know Johnny Adams, I'd, I knew, had played in his band before. And Johnny is amazing and, and right, amazing singer. singer. And, and Wayne was a terrific guitar player. But Nappy Brown's set was so fun to play, man. It was the one that I looked forward to it's every night. One of the wildest night. characters you ever wanted to
2: know in your life.
1: <laughs> he was the guy who would wear, like, athletic shoes all day long. And then he would... he and would wrap his head. He, he would bring his... Uh, he had a, a, a pair of, of, of Stacey Adams uh, shoes in, in the shoe original box. He would bring that into the dressing room. Right before he went on stage, he would take the tennis shoes off, put the, the Stacey Adams shiny patent leather shoes on, walk out, do his act, and he, would, he had this thing, oh, well, 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 Yeah,
2: no. yeah he put that laughing. And, laugh thing.
1: and he, would, he would do like this, the, the, that old school, like, tiny step thing that those uh-huh. guys would do you see like uh, uh you know different guys do but it
2: he was badass when he was up there oh
1: yeah he was a, a, a blue shouter of, of the the you know the original a fabulous generation singer. I mean he yes. could take
2: his voice especially when you listen back to all the Savoy records yes. and everything he could take and he had Mickey Baker and all those people on those records he could take his voice and shape it so many ways in the course of one song. He was sort of like a vaudeville,
3: vaudeville act, right? He, he was a, a full entertainer. He <laughs> wasn't a blues act. He was a—I'm performing, you know, broadly across this the way that people did back in the 20s and 30s. Right. And yeah, he, yeah.
1: No, that's what he it just, seemed. He,
3: was... he had that so wrapped up. Yeah. And he could
2: sing really kind of anything because he could sing soul. And on the other hand, that's why I made him do Flamingo La. Uh uh-huh. I like the tune "Flamingo," and I had him do it, and it was perfect for him. It was really sort of captured a lot of those law songs that he had, you know, uh, like Wella Wella, Wella Baby," La, and
1: right, and, uh, right, right, and a
2: you lot know, of other things. You I, know, I later some of his pop. Is, is I later knew Herb hits.
3: Jeffries, and he loved that Nappy had done that. So yeah. Herb, Herb retired off that in 1952. He lived another fifty years. Herb didn't die until like 2002, and he was like, when we we'd play with. The, in Temecula a Senior Citizen Zone with Herb Jeffries and he would always talk about Nappy Brown did a great version of this Yeah, because he loved the way that he did Flamingo because Flamingo was one of the biggest hits of all
2: time you know yeah and he, he did such a wonderful job. He did this kind of island thing to it, but it was on, we still had it on a kind of a swing and shuffle beat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I had I had Eugene Ross, who I'd had out with Gate Mouth Brown on I, guitar. I on played that.
1: a lot of things with, with Eugene. I never
2: have known what became of him, though.
1: Well, I, I, I remember... I would, he died. Uh, yeah, he did pass away, but... Uh, even after this thing I'm talking about, he w- he was still playing with uh, with Johnny Adams uh, occasionally, and also I played with with uh, Eugene backing up Porgy Jones, trumpet player here, and I would pick up Wayne at the, uh, I mean uh, Eugene at the Gust, uh, all uh, oh, like that
2: complex at Gust complex. He didn't like it when I named him High Tide, High Tide <laughs> Ross, you know. I mean High Rise Ross.
1: Well, and well, you know, Eugene. High
2: rise, you're talking about,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. The high rise is like government housing for for, you know retired people or something. But Eugene, there's this famous uh, recording uh, where where with Ray Charles. Call me the day that happened. Really?
2: (laughs) Because he got fired.
1: Well, yeah, because he's... And he was so, so proud of he's, it. He's, he's cursing out uh, Ray Charles on stage. This
2: man is a dog this, motherfucker. This is That's a man what is he kept dog. saying. And,
1: and, and Ray Charles keeps going, God bless him. God bless him, ladies and gentlemen. Security he's, to get him off drunk. the stage. Do God we have security him. here? This is there security? God bless him. And he goes, fuck <laughs> you. Fuck you. This man is a dog. <laughs> That's right.
0: A dog motherfucker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I had heard that, uh, you know, for years ahead of time. And then I then I was playing with Eugene, and, and somehow, I. Got the, uh, somebody told me I was like Eugene, is that you? He goes, yeah, that's me He was very proud of me Called and played that to me
2: Because the bass player Or something had caught it That night He was taping the show On a handheld tape deck Right, right And that's how he had it He called and let me know He was fired that night Of course Ray Ray uh, took care of him All right But he put him on a slow bus Back to Houston yeah. You know And uh, there wasn't Anything great about it But of course It used to be great To see him with Ray Charles That's when Ray Charles Had that great album He came in The Sanger Theater and played one time, and he wouldn't let them mic him up the normal way or anything mm. because he wanted everything to be sound kind of acoustic at right. the Sanger Theater and where, the like, an account bassy band where if a saxophone solo, they had one mic for the whole horn section. If somebody's going to solo, they had to walk up to the mic. Uh-huh. And uh, But he had the thing that pissed. Eugene Off was, he had him playing through, I don't know if you remember him, there's a little amp called a polytone.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I, had, I had one and, of those. And
2: he had him playing and he a polytone three. amp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he had him playing through a polytone amp, and the thing that bothered him was, and this was great, this when they had, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning and all that stuff, that mm-hmm. he was performing, big band style, and that was a great album, The Jealous Kind and all right. that. That's what they were performing. But he wanted Eugene to play the exact solo that was on the record, so that bothered him. And the other thing that bothered him was these polytone amps, he had the polytone amps set up right next to, Ray Ray had it set up right next to him, Mm -hmm. and so it was loud in his ear, so he wanted it turned way down, so Eugene's this big Buddha-type guy, and when he'd have to get up and have this little piss-ant tone on the guitar, that really bugged him. And so the night that this happened, uh, Ray said, you're too loud, and he turned it up. And he said, I said you're too loud, fuck you! You know, and he turned up all away. and uh, and and that's where it started because it was sort of like I'm sick of playing at this volume. Right, you're a dog, motherfucker. Because they had to pay for their own rooms and everything oh, know, out of their money.
3: Oh, geez. and
2: uh, and anyway. I think he enjoyed it for a long time. They had some great people in that band. but uh, And I love Ray's music, especially. I'm pretty that
3: time. sure this is why Renee does these shows. <laughs>
2: yeah, I shouldn't be cussing on your show. Oh, no, is, no, 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 no. I'm just repeating what they this said. This is the kind oh, no, of was,
1: information we live for. Oh, no. I, I love this, man. I love to connect the dots. Well, uh, uh, Hammond, we could talk to you all night for sure. Yeah, because we didn't
2: even talk about Robert Ward. Oh, oh, we'll we'll, we'll we'll have to have you back for
1: for a part two here. uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because we are kind of uh, on the down slope.
2: And we started off with Anson, you know. It's funny how that happened. It started right here in New Orleans at a place called Clarity's uh, uh, right there on, uh, what's the street that borders the side of the quarter? Not Decatur, the other side. Rampart, yeah, Rampart, Rampart. Uh, Clarity's is right. on Rampart, and I heard about Anson. I heard him play there one night, so I throw that in to let you know we can go all the way back there or we can come. Oh, all yeah, the
1: no, way. no, no. And and I ran into Anson uh not too long ago. I want to have Anson on the show as well, man. So, He's one uh, of the
2: world's most wonderful guys, Anson Funderburg. With. You know, yes. you're talking about the salt of the earth,
1: yeah, 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 which I
2: really like. Man. But I like one of the things I know you're signing off, but one of the things I will say. Uh, I didn't deal with big egos too well, you know, so uh, everybody on Blacktop was pretty real. You know, they all had been through enough ups and downs where they were very real, yet they were truly getting the chance at the brass ring right? because we made a palpable difference. Uh, Just about everybody we recorded, it was a big difference in their life. Yes. They weren't going to be pop stars, but uh, so... It, but, it was but a, you gave them second
1: careers. You you gave these guys you know, a second bite
3: of the apple. Just to sure. throw my two cents in, yes. Like you, could you know, we're a, talking about Grady Gaines. We're talking about uh, James Thunderbird Davis. We're talking about you know. I mean, the, the list goes on. of uh, Clarence, here, here's Clarence. Of my God. You know, yeah. Clarence, Clarence, um, Carol, Carol, the whole, the whole gang, and. Um, or even Ronnie Earl. There's all kinds right, of Right, right. So it just goes on and on Hubert and on. Salmon, so he, yeah. this guy is not just a sequel. He's a... <laughs>
1: oh, no, I know. But, th- but you know, th- the take funny us-
2: thing, if we, if we ever were able to really keep me on, on, on line, uh, in line, so to speak, there is a chronological order to it all. I just don't stick to it.
1: Oh, no, we like that. Yeah. Because
2: really, when you think about it, I'll throw this one little nugget in mm-hmm. there. I mean, Thunderbird Davis was discovered by Guitar Slim. And he was living with his grandmother, who is very strict home and uh, right outside of Mobile. And they came through one night and and Thunderbird was young and he went to hear it. And and I don't know how, I, I, I didn't ever think to ask all the questions I should have asked back then. It really bothers me. There's so much information I could have had if I'd really thought about these guys aren't gonna last forever and I could ask all these great questions. Right but I do know that he ran away from home to take off with Guitar Slim to be Guitar Slim's running buddy Mm -hmm. and also open the shows because he was such a great singer. And he was such a great singer that B.B. King was the one that actually told me, if I had a record label, Hammond, I would find Thunderbird Davis, you know. Absolutely. And uh, and he was playing, that was a week that B.B. was playing, a week down at the Blue Room. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we went up there, me and Ronnie, to see him. And uh, so... My point really is is that um sometimes one thing would grow out of another, you know, like i didn't even I didn't know if I'd ever even meet Clarence Holloman. I was aware of who he was, but when I was doing the record on Grady, that's who he wanted to play guitar, and I couldn't believe it Clarence Holloman, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and I went to the house to meet him. well, the lady that was cooking me the hamburger was Carol Fran, and uh and then you know, Thunderbird connected all into that because he he spent the early part of his career with Guitar Slim. And then when Guitar Slim died, he started, he never wanted to have his own band, he didn't want to try to manage a band, so he always had a job like being the opening, the warm up act for like uh, Sam Cooke or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, sometimes the way things worked out, there was a chronological order and that you're doing a Grady Gaines record, next thing you know, you know Clarence Holloman. And then when I had this thing and got Thunderbird in there, you know, in the mix. Then the next thing you know, they're sleeping at my house instead of in the hotel because that's what they wanted to do. Nice. And they sleep in the same bed, so they didn't want to have, they didn't want to be back to back or butt to butt or 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 male argon to butt. <laughs> so they turned the opposite way in the bed,
1: head to toe, head yeah. to
2: toe. And and <laughs> and. Uh, but you know, that's when I first realized how far back Clarence Holloman and Thunderbird went because. Right that Clarence remembered Thunderbird from the days when they were using him at Duke Records uh, to do demos for people like Bobby Bland and all that, you know, for them to learn the songs. And then he had his own records and, you know, a lot of people covered Thunderbird's uh, two Texas biggest Sweat. southern hits. Uh, the, the the Well, the, the, the one I'm really thinking of is Your Turn to Cry and Blue Monday Blues. And uh, But sometimes we do it, I'll talk the whole story about Going with Lloyd Lambert, Guitar Slim's band leader to find Thunderbird, nice, and uh, how he came to the label. He wasn't alive for very long. He was only fifty three when he died, but he was a kicks person to be around. He was so musical, you know. Probably his voice was a
3: little smoother when he was younger. All right, but well, uh, there's well, so well, many the stories. Full, the you Full know. Gain record, one of the the the, the, the greatest of all time. <laughs>
0: Oh. A
2: lot of people are funny about that, that Grady Gaines record, cause I'm hearing a lot of times on that Grady Gaines record, that first one. I'm thinking we were at Sugar Hill Studio, and the band was too big for the studio, and that I could have recorded it better. But a lot of people really love that record. I went I back and listened one night. You can hear everything.
3: It's one of the greatest records of all time.
1: There you go. There you go. Dick <laughs> Deluxe weighs in. Well, uh, we'll have to uh, leave it as a cliffhanger here for all that other stuff. Hammond, thank you so the much.
2: Cliffhanger is how did I ever come to be married and have be 73 with a 10 year old and a 12 year old and a 13 year old? That's the cliffhanger. Right. Right. The you're
1: real, a cliffhanger. Boss, right.
2: real cliffhanger is how's that going to uh, end well, up?
1: Well, well, Hammond, thank you so much for making all these fantastic records, man. Uh, you, you know, you've, you've it's a it's a service you've done for the whole world, and and God bless you for it, man. And, uh, I'm
2: glad you say that because a lot of times you wonder if it'll all be forgotten. Because oh, the no, way no, I no, listen no. to my kids, no, 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 I was thinking no, no, about no, today that, that I was coming to this show, and my kids know about blues and R and B, not like I do, but they appreciate it. But they're totally hooked into listening to B97 now, and they know every song on there. And I get in the car, and the, the radio gets switched right away, and they're the one that I like the most that they play because I don't like most of what they play. At least I'm not a, a Miley Cyrus fan, but her song. Uh, I can buy my own flowers. At least she's got a soulful voice, and she does some cool ad-libs. She probably didn't sing it straight down, but, uh, and they have a real bass on it. But most of the stuff they listen to, there's nobody ever solos or anything. And I'm thinking, Still gosh.
1: working as an A&R man.
2: Yeah, I'm just um, thinking it'll man. never. Right,
1: right, right. A, a record man from, from way back. <laughs> died in the wall. Well, uh, yes, thank you for, for, for making all those records. And thank you for uh, coming on the uh, the Feral Zone podcast. And for uh, Mr. Dick Deluxe and Mr. Hammond Scott, I am Renee Coleman signing off from inside the Feral Zone.
2: I like to be.
0: flying over the island to my lover nearby. Flamingo, and your tropical view speaks of passion and dire and a lover that's true. Exit to me